Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, we can't get away from the fire, can we? Uh, have you noticed how many times over the past two months this, this language of fire keeps coming up? The scripture won't release us from the scorching heat. And this is a, this is a disturbing story in many ways, if we're paying attention. And this is Jesus that we're dealing with here. I mean, Jesus is the one telling this story, meek and mild Jesus, Jesus who would never say an upsetting word, Jesus who wouldn't even swat a fly. On August 18th, uh, and I'm just saying the date in case you want to go back and listen to it, but we talked about love's scorching heat, and I want to return us to some of the words we said uh, several weeks ago. God's fire is not retribution. God's fire does not bellow from an enraged deity. God, because of Jesus, is forever on our side. In Jesus, God has eternally bound himself to humanity. God's fire is a cleansing fire. The prophet Micah calls God's fire a refiner's fire. The fire burns away everything in us that's death, everything that is not yet transformed by love. But here we have this story of the rich man and Abraham and Lazarus and flames and the great chasm. And for some of us, depending on uh, what we learned in Sunday school, the images of people trapped in hell, desperate to relent, begging for mercy, and God turning away. Um, a few things we need to say just at the outset. One is like what it actually is that we're reading. We're reading a parable. A parable is a story that Jesus told, and he told lots of them. And they were intended as vivid illustrations that unveiled a penetrating truth for those who had ears to hear and that actually kept a truth veiled for those who didn't have ears to hear. With parables, we're never trying to find one-for-one -one realities in all the details of the story. It's like a children's story or a piece of fiction that gets at the truth far better than a news report ever could. Something else that's happening here is that apparently Jesus is borrowing from a number of very well-known folktales of his day where a rich person mistreats a poor person and then their fortunes are reversed in the afterlife. This is a story that everyone would have known. They probably would have heard versions of it when they were little children. And Jesus pulls out this story and arrests their attention and unfolds a truth that they need to hear. The other thing we need to say is that this parable actually has a context. And the context is other parables. Do you remember the scripture that we read last week about the shrewd manager? With Jesus making these concluding words, 
No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And then Luke adds that the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. So in that parable, we have the Pharisees, the religious elite, who love money and who love to show off their self-righteousness. But if you go back one parable before that, it's the story we know as the prodigal son. A story that Jesus told because these same Pharisees were grumbling at Jesus because he ate with publicans and sinners. And Jesus weaves a tale of a son who abandons his father, grasps the little bit of money he can grab and runs off to a far country and blows it. And then what is he doing? He's eating food that's intended for the pigs and he realizes that his only hope is to come back home. And so he comes back home, but he can't even get back home because the father rushes out to the son and welcomes him. And the story ends with the older brother being angry at the father for welcoming the younger brother home. And so, really, that parable is not the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of two prodigal sons. One in the story, we, he, he blows it big time. I mean, he sins bold and sins big, but he comes home. The other prodigal is a prodigal in his heart and stays real close by. And you'd never know his prodigalness unless we were told how he responds to grace that's offered to his brother. And we don't actually know at the end of the story whether he comes home or not. And the Pharisees who are listening listening to this, if they have ears to hear, what they're left, the question they're left with is, am I going to come home to grace and the Father or not? So with these parables, Jesus hints for those of us who have ears to hear, that many of us are at risk of being an older brother, worse off even than the sinners that we revile because with our self-righteousness and our shriveled soul, and to make matters worse perhaps, the ways we suffer the love of money, that we are in a really grave position. Those of us who think that we've won are in a perilous position and we're oblivious to how much we actually need mercy. So we have this third parable. And if we're reading these in order, and particularly if we've just heard this word from Jesus about the dangers of loving money, and then Luke adds... And the Pharisees, who loved money, sneered at Jesus. And then we hear the opening words to this third parable. There was a rich man. So who would we think, perhaps, that this rich man would be? (laughs) It's the religious elite who love money and love their self-righteousness and think they've won. This is precisely who Jesus is talking to. But there wasn't just a rich man, there was also a poor man, and his name was Lazarus. And it's interesting, this is the only time in any of Jesus' parables that someone is named. And it's the poor man. And we don't actually need to read any further 
before we venture at least a pretty good guess that this parable has something to do with how those who think so highly of themselves with their external religiosity and their supposed superiority and their money and their resources are in grave danger while the poor and the outcasts, if they'll have it, find welcome in Jesus's wide open arms. So this parable doesn't lay out details of what happens to us after death. It's certainly not giving us any kind of blow-by-blow description of hell because this actually isn't even hell. This is Hades. And it's interesting in some versions, at least older versions of the NIV, they kind of throw all these words together and then just use the word hell to describe it. And then our image of hell is this eternal reality. But Hades was actually a, a notion that was drawn from the Jewish scriptures. It was a place where the dead go. And in actually most of Jewish thinking, it was where everyone who was dead went. And everyone waited for the day of resurrection. And most Jews believed that in Hades, there was actually a separation, a separation between those who were ready to receive mercy and those who were not ready to receive mercy. And in fact, the place where those who were ready to receive mercy, where they went, was often called Abraham's bosom. And this is precisely where Jesus describes the poor man, that he's at Abraham's side, or in some translations, he's at Abraham's bosom. The point of Jesus' story isn't to tell us details of Hades or hell, but Jesus is pulling a narrative from the culture of his day and using that story to make his point, which is uh, no less arresting. Jesus' point seems to be to reveal the lunacy of those of us who are self-righteous, those of us who deny mercy, those who live with no regard for the poor. And Jesus' parable shows us how tenaciously we cling to our self-absorption. And Jesus, in this profound, troubling story, invites us to abandon all this ego, to abandon this idea of being the winner, to open ourselves to mercy. Because we have a rich man, and the scripture says that he's wearing purple linen, This is dye that they would have received by squeezing snails. So you get a a tiny, tiny, tiny bit at a time, and it's kind of disgusting work. And it makes the dye really expensive, and only the wealthiest wear it. And the rich man is wearing fine linens, purple linens, and he lives in luxury every day, the scripture says. But then there's Lazarus, who's a beggar at his gate. And the word that's used for gate is the kind of gate you have at palaces. I mean, this is a gate. And he's eating scraps, which is precisely what the first prodigal was eating in the earlier parable. And Lazarus was wanting the food that fell from the table. It's what the dogs would eat. The prodigal two parables ago was eating what the pigs would eat. And Lazarus is here eating what the dogs would eat. But the scripture says that even the dogs came and licked his sores. These dogs were the ones eating the food that Lazarus longed for, and yet they had more compassion on Lazarus than the rich man had. 
Because the picture we get from the parable is that the rich man is just walking right past, totally oblivious and unconcerned about Lazarus's poverty and need. But at least the dogs go and offer the one thing they, they know how to do. And if you've ever been around dogs, when you have sores, when they have sores, they just lick them and lick them and lick them. Supposedly it's a salve. It's really gross to me. But it's what they know to do to relieve the pain. And the dogs are going out to Lazarus to relieve his pain, but the rich man isn't. Lazarus dies and the angels carry him to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died and he goes to Hades and is in torment. And in torment, he looks up and he sees Abraham far away and he sees Lazarus at Abraham's side. And he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in these flames. I want to pause again and say, if God's fire is a cleansing fire, St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, the secrets of Christ's heart are revealed to us through the cleft of his side and also through the fire in his heart. St. Faustina said, the flames of mercy are burning in Jesus. The flames of mercy are burning in Jesus. And did you notice how What's really troubling at this point is how the rich man is still acting like an entitled rich man. He doesn't speak to Lazarus, still. He speaks to Father Abraham. And he still treats Lazarus as a servant whose job it is to tend to his needs. His needs happen to be more acute now. But it's Lazarus's job to take care of him. And Abraham replies, son, or in some translations, child, I love the tenderness here. There's no revenge. There's tenderness. And he says to the rich man, remember that in your lifetime, you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in agony. And there's a great chasm here. There's a great chasm here. Well, then I beg you, the rich man says, send Lazarus to my father's house and warn my five brothers so they won't come to this awful place too. And he's still at it. He still sees himself as the rich man and Lazarus as the servant. And if you actually hear what the rich man actually says, it seems like he's really only concerned about his brothers avoiding pain. There's no sense of repentance. There's no cry for forgiveness from Lazarus. There's no plea to Lazarus for mercy. There's no opening of his heart toward Lazarus. This rich man had ignored Lazarus his entire life and now that that life was over, he was still ignoring Lazarus. As I hear this parable, the real sadness and tragedy in this story is actually not that the rich man is encountering the fire of God's love. The tragedy of this story is the rich man is not allowing the fire of God's love to actually undo him. 
to his very uh, pain, he is clinging to this notion of being the winner. He is clinging, he is still working the schemes. The, the idea of your brothers, it was your family wealth, it was your family system, and you lived in many ways to hold together your family dynasty. And this rich man who had so much from this very place of Hades was merely trying to move the pieces around and now arrange it in such a way that he was still the winner. Even using Lazarus and getting Abraham to go and, and, and arrange things with his brothers so that they wouldn't face the fire of God's love. And Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And now imagine you are one of the early readers of Luke. And you hear this word from Abraham. They will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Where is your mind immediately going to go? Well, the one who's telling this story rises from the dead. The very one retelling this story, the very one who in days ahead would die on a cross and descend into the place of death or into Hades and preach the gospel of the mercy of God and the kingdom of the forgiveness of Christ to those very people, to the rich man. This is where Jesus was going to be heading but apparently, if we don't hear Moses and the prophets, we won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And they're left with this question, would they listen? Would they hear? So in the earlier parable, the story of the two prodigals, the Pharisees were left wondering whether or not they would come home to the Father. And with this parable, they're left wondering, will we hear Moses and the prophets? Will we hear the one who's before us? And what would they be convinced of? The proclamation of the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ, who stood in front of them that very moment in his very body, was proclaiming with his life. That the kingdom of God is breaking in now. That in this kingdom, the poor and the lame and the sinners are healed and welcomed, and that we actually all are the poor and the lame and the sinners. That everyone, those of us who think that we're winners and those of us who think that we're losers, we all need mercy. But there is a very grave warning in this parable. There is a very real danger that those of us who have much or think that we are much, those of us who allow our power or our wealth or our ego to delude us into the believing that we don't need God's mercy, we are in grave danger of the severest mercy. And it is a mercy, but it is severe. We may find ourselves in love's scorching heat. And if we find ourselves in that place, the quicker we relent, the better. The quicker we surrender 
to this whole notion that we can manage our life and that we can concoct goodness and that we can present ourselves in a way that earns God's favor, it doesn't exist. Mercy is the story from the beginning to end. Even God's fire is a mercy. Would you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.